So we continue today with Matthew chapter 5. Um, I'd like to start out by answering a question that came up two, two or three weeks ago. Um, and the question was, when John was baptizing, did those people need to be rebaptized? Uh, and the answer is yes, and it's straight from Scripture. Turn to Acts, Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, if someone would like to read verses 1 through 5. So, pretty straightforward answer. Yeah, they did need to be baptized. I, I found this on accident this week. I, I was thinking about it and looking through Acts, and, and there it was. Very, very straightforward. Um, they needed to be baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, so far in the first four chapters of Matthew, it's kind of like the stage is set. Um, Everything is pointing to Jesus, and especially in chapters 3 and 4, it's now pointing to Jesus as the substitute. Jesus, who stands in for the repentant sinner, uh, shows us first that in his own baptism. He's a substitute. He stands in. So all things are pointed to Christ, and, and all things are pointed to so far as him as the substitute. How this will develop later in Matthew is not only will he be the substitute, but he'll be the atoning substitute. He will make the payment. Um, hence the term sub substitution. I can't even say it. Substitutional atonement. That is, uh, that is how we believe in, in just how we are justified. The payment of sins with Christ as the substitute. Now we begin with the the five parts of Matthew's catechism. We can call them discourses, we can call them sayings, um, we can call them words or matters. Uh, there are many, there's a few different names that they're actually given in Matthew. Um, in fact, the word is legomena, and it doesn't translate well to English. And it means a little bit of all those things. It's not just a set of words but it's a matter, it's a teaching, it's a discourse. So now we have the first discourse, the first major saying that is actually repeated throughout Christianity. And we can see the five here, and they're not necessarily take up all of Matthew either. But the first one is by far the largest, the Sermon on the Mount. Then we see the commissioning of the apostles. We'll have that later on. So the Sermon on, on the Mount is the church's first statement of the gospel. The first statement of the gospel made by Jesus Christ himself. It would make no other sense if it were not to be Jesus himself. The next discourse, well, as we, as we get to these points in Matthew, the next part of the catechism is commissioning of the apostles. Why is that important? Well, who's going to Get the church going. It's got to it start somewhere. Then we have the sayings, the discourses of the parables of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. Uh, these are repeated throughout uh, two, of the, two out of the three of the other gospels. 
the parables of the kingdom, and also repeated by Paul, too. These are sayings that are highly noted. The next discourse, so we have, all right, here's commissioning of the apostles. This is how uh, the Lord sends pastors. Here's the parable, here's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like this. Jesus is like this. And then there's the discourses of the church. It gives us uh, a bit of structure of what the church is going to be like. And then the, the final discourse is about the end times. And the end times, as we'll see, is actually our... Uh, the end times every November in the church year. Um, every November, it's that time of the church year where the last three or four weeks of November are all about the end times, the afterlife, the last day, and thereafter. And we get a, we get a little bit further, uh, a further taste of heaven, if you will, uh, more, more heaven on earth. Then, of course, in December, we start with Advent, the coming of the Lord. So the first of the church year is December 1st. But this sermon, um, this is a first impression. It's the introduction to Christianity. Uh, Jesus, as we will see, gives in this first impression that the Hebrew Bible is authoritative. So up to this point, we've, all, we've already learned that Matthew, lots of references to Old Testament scripture. And Jesus will make it clear um, in verse, in actually uh, chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Somebody would like to read that. We should, let's review that now. Chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Yeah, so Jesus is, is going to reassure, um, and this is actually after his Beatitudes and just before he, exp he expands and explains the commandments, that he's not here to change the ways of old. Um, he's not here to, to add or subtract from the Old Testament scriptures. He's, he will give us the, he will give us the, his first impression, the introduction to Christianity is that everything about the Old Testament that you read and hear is correct. Um, that's not to say how the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees were interpreting it, but he stands that the Hebrew Bible is authoritative. All right. The Sermon on the Mount also um, is the most frequently cited text in the New Testament. As you go through the New Testament, um, anytime that something is brought up from the past, most of it comes from the Sermon on the Mount, the most frequently quoted text in the New Testament. Um, the sermon's influence on Christianity um, it likely helped put Matthew to the front of the New Testament. Uh, it's in the, it's the, first, the first book of the New Testament is Matthew. Not necessarily anyone thought that it was written first, which it happens, it was. But it was, it was the prominence of this first statement on the gospel. Um, in Luke... The Sermon on the Mount is called, does anybody know? It's a little different. It's a Sermon on the Plain in Luke. The wording is different. There's some things that aren't there. There's some things that are there that are not in the Matthew Sermon on the Mount. Why would or why could that be so different? Well, the sermon could have been preached more than once. I bet you it was a darn good sermon, right? 
Jesus, Jesus preached it. It, could, it certainly could have been preached more than one. Could it also have been preached by others? Well, sure, it's the words of Christ. And the best sermon we've ever had, actually, is the first sermon. Um, we also, one of the differences between Matthew and Luke, uh, Matthew was there. So Matthew, Matthew, because of the, the calling of the first apostles prior to this, he, he puts himself in the place of that. Another thing is where Luke talked to an eyewitness. Luke talked to somebody who had heard it. Luke may have heard it repeated. Um, so it, it goes back to, uh, um, if you know anything about detective work, and I don't, but this is what, this is what I, I've been told. Detectives, when they investigate a murder, they get this person's story, and they get this person's story. And if those two stories are exactly the same, it's likely that they're both lying. But if this person remembers the guy was wearing a blue hat, and this person remembers the guy, the guy was wearing a black hat, but some, a lot of the other things are lining up, that's how in forensic studies, detectives know um, that it's the truth. So anytime we see any sort of disparities between Gospels, between the three synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even between uh, some things in John, John the, John's definitely a different, a different Gospel, um, that actually solidifies, solidifies the narrative. Um, Matthew also in age, is an older person. Uh, we don't know how much older, but he was likely, because of, because of his place in life and because of uh, Luke's place in life, Matthew was at least 20 to 30 years older than Luke. Not to mention anybody that Luke may have, have talked to in his uh, interviewing eyewitnesses' accounts. Now, this teaching of the church it, it is brought up quite a bit. So we're going to look at a couple of things before we, before we get. Somebody would like to read in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... All right. Thank you. So... This sounds like a, a fairly simple introduction, but there, there, there's actually some more going on here. A lot more going on here. One of the things is the word, uh, the word for teaching. You say teaching or the teaching? Yeah, and taught them. And taught them. It's, uh, I'll, I'll try to write it in English. Didasco. As an adjective, it's uh, didactic. As a noun, and this is where it'll become important, it's didache, or the teaching. So this comes up in Acts. This, this, this uh, funny word comes up in Acts uh, as a teaching. It's, it's a somewhat of a common word in the Bible. Well, let's turn to Acts 2.42 to see how it's used. disciples. This is the 3,000 souls that just heard uh, Peter's first sermon on Pentecost. And these souls devoted themselves to the apostles' didache and the fellowship. So what's going on? What's the didache? It's reading the word of God and preaching the word of God. Um, and to the fellowship. This is koinonia. This is a very common word also that has to do 
with the Lord's Supper. And then to the breaking of the bread and prayers. So not only, it, not only do we, is the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper, well, yes, it is because of other things in, in, in the Bible. Um, but that koinonia, that fellowship word, is, is almost always tied. After the resurrection, it's almost always tied to the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion. The word communion comes from this fellowship word. And the prayers. So what's going on from this didache, from this teaching that is about to start in Matthew? Church. Preaching, teaching, Lord's Supper, and prayers. What's that sound like? Sounds like Sunday morning. Sounds like Sunday morning. So, another reason why this is important. This is the name of a book from about 120 to 150. It's the first hymnal. It's the first hymnal it's the first catechism post-Bible. It is not the Word of God. Um, but a lot of our liturgy actually comes from this teaching. Um, the, the Didache even has the words of institution. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the night when he was betrayed, took bread. So it's a historical document that helps solidify things. If we ever want to know What's the earliest things that the church did after Bible times? We go to the Didache. It's in Greek, too. It's in the same language. But all right. So that's why this, this teaching is, is uh, it's loaded. All right. We already talked about the five discourses, but I want to turn to a couple of these, a couple of these uh, markers of the discourses. Let's first turn to... Uh, Matthew 7, verse 28. Somebody would like to read that. When Jesus had finished saying, he said, So when Jesus had finished discourses, this sermon, and this marks the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his Didasco. The same word comes up. At the end of the other discourses, as we'll see, and, and, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do the next one here, which is at 11.1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And that's the end of discourse two. The end of these discourses actually have a grammatical marker saying... This is the end of this discourse. And then we get narratives about what goes on in between, in between these teachings. Because remember, Matthew is not written in, it's not written as a history book. It's not written in chronological order from beginning to end. So most of it is in the chunks. Of course, Jesus was born, then he was baptized, then his ministry. But these teachings and what goes on in the middle, not necessarily in chronological order, because it's not written to be that. It's just simply not written to be that. Now, of these five discourses, um, it also has a reflection of something, especially from that Matthew 5, 17 and 18 that we wrote, where Jesus came to fulfill the law, to uphold the law. You know, nothing will be missed. Not one iota or dot will be missed. And that's a reflection, when they say the law, when they say the Torah, um, they also mean what, what a Jew would understand, Matthew who writes to the Jews, a Jew would understand that to be the first five books of the Bible, which is the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch. So there's a five-fold structure to teaching. Hebrews, Jews of the time that went through their own catechism, their own catechesis, were instructed first as junior confirmands on the five first books of the Bible, 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch, just like Pentagon, five sides. So there's a five-fold structure that's recognizable to this. All right. We're going to get into the sermon here. First of all, the speaker. The speaker. Obviously, we know that that's Jesus. And if we had to summarize the message of Jesus, we looked at this last week and the week before. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Somebody would like to read that. of the same thing that we're told John the Baptist was preaching. But now, now, now uh, uh, Jesus is doing it. So it's the same message as John, and perhaps much of the content of the Sermon on the Mount was spoken by John the Baptist. Maybe because John was a man chosen by God. He was called a prophet. Um, what is different between John and Jesus? What's that? Jesus came from God. Jesus is God. He's the chosen one. So the difference between these two sermons, imagine, uh, you know, am I, when you hear a sermon on Sunday, am I the Christ? Of course I'm not. What would be the difference of Jesus saying a sermon in the place of John, in the place of any preacher. He speaks with authority. And this authority is key to understanding Matthew in the long run. John's authority is like that of a prophet. Jesus' authority, as, a, as, as the Son of God, being the Son, his authority is inherited. The Son of Man, the Son of God. And it belongs to his person. So how do we define the Trinity? One God, one divine will, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This authority to preach on earth, he inherits from the Father. The Father who said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It's all about him now. Jesus speaks as Jesus speaks as authority. So this authority is within his personhood. So what's the difference of a the person of the Son, let's say, versus the person of the Spirit? Well, their goal, the goal, the divine will of God, is salvation, to be reconciled creator to creation. The Holy Spirit has a different role and has authority. The Son has a different role. And at this time, it's his teaching and preaching and his ministry on earth. And we've already been told he's going to be a substitute. So John the Baptist still had followers. I, he, we, we learned that in Acts 19. He had followers years afterwards. The sermons were good. The sermons were good. The sermons were inspired by God. Remember how John was born of Elizabeth, a barren womb. God provided the baby. God provided John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist, greatest man born of women, but even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Greater than he, Jesus says. John points to the authority, and so does Jesus. People will not understand this, so he'll start to speak to them in parables. After he commissions his leaders, he'll start to speak to people in parables. A lot of them farming, a lot of them farming, which we see very early in the Sermon on the Mount, too. Um, one more note on chapter 5. 
on verse 1 actually. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So it does give us a picture that the crowds and disciples are separated. But yet the commissioning of all 12 apostles isn't until later in his ministry. Um, I'm sorry, isn't until later in the gospel. It's in chapter 10. Does that mean that there are only those four apostles called so far at the sermon? No. We have to remember, this is not written as a history, uh, a chronological, historical narrative. This is written as a book of teaching to the Jews and to the Gentiles. This is a catechism. Matthew is Matthew's writing theology. Um, and what gets first placement after, after he ta- talks about where Jesus comes from up to this point? The sermon of Jesus, the first statement of the gospel, gets first placement. Not necessarily because it happened first, because it's of first importance. And he opened his mouth and taught them. All right. Verse 3. Who would like to read verse 3? You can read it right here if you want. So we'll look at this first beatitude. And this will, this is a very, I lost my mark. There it is. A very commonly misunderstood are these beatitudes. If I were seeing this for the first time, and and I've made this mistake recently, what do I think when I see that? Okay, yeah, yeah. So, but at this point, I see, all right, so I see heaven. I, Old Testament time, I've heard this thing about heaven. That's where God, that's where God lives. That's where God comes from. Um, How do I get to heaven? If I'm reading this in a mistaken way, Well, if I'm poor in spirit, then mine will be the kingdom of heaven. If I am meek, I shall inherit the earth. If I hunger and thirst for righteousness, I will be satisfied. There's one little word that messes this up. Those are all falsehoods, by the way. What's wrong with that? We, we as Lutherans know what's wrong with that. If I do this, then I get that. That's not, that, that's not, how, uh, that's not how salvation works. That's not how God's grace works. So I'm going to change one word. I think it has to do with, with uh, how much we know and our willingness to want to learn more. <coughs> No, it's we better. start out not knowing as much, and then as we study his word, we learn more. Okay. That, I, I'd have to say no only because if I were to put that in my own words, I'd say, if I continue to study his word, I will learn more. That would make me the institutor of my own faith. And, and that's and I completely get that's where you get that's where this if and then comes from. Um, if I get hungry, then I will learn more, and I get closer to the kingdom of heaven. And that's okay. I thought that I I thought just like that for years. One word that messes us up. The 
The word in Greek, so you know I'm not giving you just a bunch of bull. Um, the word in Greek is hoti. Because. So this is not an if-then statement. This is not a, if I'm this, then this is mine. I, I'll give you an example. I am not wearing my tab today, for I left it at home. I am not wearing my tab today because I left it at home. This is an older English. Saying for instead of because is, is quite simply, it's an older English. So, we'll break this down a little bit further. So if I say, going back to the wrong way, if I'm poor in spirit, then the kingdom of heaven will be mine. That's law. I need to do this to do that. I need to do this for this effect. If I do this, then I get that. The Beatitudes are pure gospel. Besides what I'm about to go through, what else would Jesus stand up there and say? He's already shown himself as a substitute, standing in your place. Here are crowds coming to him, hungry for the learning, and here are his disciples in front of him. The poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven. I'm sorry. No, back up, back up. I'm going to go to my notes. The poor in spirit are blessed. Those are reversible. When you have this are, this is, or this to be, this is just like an equal sign. Because it's an inflected language, blessed and poor have the same inflection. And that means they are equal to each other. The poor in spirit are blessed because they have the kingdom of heaven. Now let's make this more a little bit more American for us. The poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven and therefore... Now, yes, yeah, so the poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven, therefore they are blessed. This blessedness, first of all, we have to talk about blessed because it's in every beatitude. That's why we call it a, a, a beatitude. Blessedness is the state of being favorably accepted by God and you have received his divine approval. God gives you the nod, rather than turning you into a pillar of salt. So blessedness also has to do with righteousness. One thing I want to look at with his Beatitudes, and this is a... Let's go ahead and read Beatitudes verses 3 through 10. We need to read them as a whole to, to get this. 3 through 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So for Beatitude 3 through 10, there's something that repeats. Blessed, I'm just going to abbreviate, blessed are... And then in grammar, we call this the third person plural. Blessed are they. He's talking about something else. He's talking about 
they. They may include himself. They may include the people in front of him. They may include you. They may include I. But he's talking, he's talking in the language of they. Somebody would like to read verse 11. Falsely on my account. Thank you. Yeah. Big difference. Blessed are you. Now this is meant for the disciples. So before we even get into each of the Beatitudes, we know that three and ten, three through ten, is a little different from that last beatitude. Blessed are you. There's something else with verses three and ten individually. So, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is purposeful. This happens, this is actually part of what we call biblical rhetoric. It's called an inclusio. I think it's Latin. But it's enclosed. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven. It's wrapped. These beatitudes are wrapped, and then the sudden shift. This is basically only to mark this off. There's a sharp line of distinction um, between 3 through 10 and 11. 3 and 10 have that inclusio. It starts this way and it ends that way. 4 through 9... Inside the inclusio, also has a different, also have has a different um, verb tense than three and ten. So three and ten for theirs is right now the kingdom of heaven. Four through nine. Instead of is, what do we have there? Shall be. So now, Jesus talks about the future. Um, I promise we'll get to the actual beatitude. The beatitudes are not law. The, all, the Beatitudes are also not promises in this sense. Promises suggest a reward for acceptable behavior, for potential future behavior. Um, this is not a, if you do this, then I promise I'll give you this. It's, it's not that, that type of promise. A gospel promise is one that is complete gift without any of your doing. So, um, a lot of, even Lutheran theologians, preachers, pastors, churches will talk about the promises from God. Um, I tend to stay away from that because of that. Because promise, um, promise in the Bible isn't necessarily always used like that. Because promise is a, is a promised result of an initial behavior. And that's, that's just not how grace works. That's how, not how these, these gifts work. So, the Beatitudes, pure gospel. Pure gospel. Now, who do they include and who do they not? We'll get to that. Now, the actual Beatitude. The first one. I missed all this other stuff. Poor in spirit. So what does it mean to be one of the they, one of the ones that are poor in spirit? This does not, it does not have anything to do with economics. It is not 
short on money. It is not financial deprivation. Poor and spirit are both highly used words um, by Matthew. Let's turn to Matthew 26, 41. Twenty six forty one. Whoever would like to read that. All right. So there's a anything that is of the spirit is separate from the flesh, and these divisions not only in Matthew, but throughout the whole Bible. Flesh and spirit, body and soul, these comparisons almost always reflect, like you read, good and evil. Holiness and sin. Clean, dirty, in Old Testament terms. Uh, in fact, uh, the opening line, remember that hymnal I was talking, telling you about from the year 120 or 150? Um, the opening line to that hymnal, there are two ways, one of life, one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. That's how the, the initial teaching of the church after the Bible started. The spirit here is the life, not the poor in spirit, but the spirit this is the life you live before God. So the poor in spirit are those who make no claims on God for themselves. I really screwed up. I don't think God will forgive me. I don't deserve God's forgiveness. Before God, the poor in spirit stand as beggars, destitute beggars. They make no claims in heaven and expect no rewards. Expecting no rewards. But because theirs is, is the kingdom of heaven, they are blessed. Hear that, you get that sense of repentance that's in there. But this is pure gospel. I, what I read, this description of spirit, we stand as beggars before God, I don't deserve heaven. All I can do is beg God. I have done nothing in my life. I'm terrible. I broke every commandment. I'm a sinner. That's what poor in spirit is. I am in full repentance, lowly, aching, mourning my own sin. And Jesus tells me, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, you are blessed. That's gospel. Pure gospel. I don't deserve heaven, but he says it's mine. And he says, I'm blessed. Now the Beatitudes are also in a plural form. Blessed are, quite literally, it's the poor ones. And that's why I mean by the they. It's not blessed is he, it's blessed are they. Blessed are the poor ones um, in spirit is, is more of a literal translation. Um, this is where I came across one of the first things about James. Uh, James also does this shift. Remember that shift we saw at the end? It went from they, 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 and then verse 11, it's you. James does this, this shift as well. Makes it very personal. With that, I want to take a look at 2 Corinthians 8 9. And we see this plural to singular in a little bit clearer way. Whoever would like to read that? For you know 
All right, thank you. And it's not something that stands out in English because you in, in English can be either you one or you all. I guess if it, unless you're in the South where you say y'all, that, that might be the... But in, in the original, it's for you all know the grace of our Lord. Though he, singular, was rich, yet for your all sake he became poor. So that you all, by his single poverty, might become rich. Um, James does this as well. So what, so, so what, this is actually a first clue into something. Jesus is not only talking about us. He's also talking about himself. Who will become poorest in spirit when he gives up his spirit? Jesus. When he gives up his spirit and says it is finished, it's Jesus. Yeah, he humbled himself to the point of death. His is the kingdom of heaven, and he is blessed. This is my son who, with whom I am well pleased. This, it, I, I think this is eye-opening. This, this is huge. Because not only do we have the gospel for us, but as we go through these, we'll start to see the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. It, it, so whether this is uh, the gospel for the church, which we might call um, the study of the church is ecclesiology. When, when the church is brought up in the Bible, how we, what we do, like that teaching and preaching and the breaking of bread, that's ecclesiology. Um, uh, but when it's about Christ, the gospel of Christ specifically, that's Christology. These two things intermingle, and this, is how, and this is another reason why we know that Christ is part of this. These two things will intermingle in the future in Matthew, we'll see as well. And they should. This should be both Christ and us, because what do we know about the abiding of Christ? He abides in us, and we abide in him. And we abide in him. So this gospel, are we perfectly poor in spirit? No. Is Jesus. There's a point he will be. For he who is divine and has all power in the world chose to become flesh. For he who is holy and perfect chose to live in a world, to grow up in a world absolutely permeated by sin, by death, by unholiness, by dirtiness, and will die for it. All right. The spirit here is that life you live before God. I think we'll get through another beatitude. All right, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4. The second beatitude. I think this is important to do for a... Blessed are those who mourn. Quite literally, the mourning ones. For they... Again, upon first glance of this second beatitude, so if I mourn, I will be comforted. That's not what this is saying. The mourning ones, the ones who mourn, will be comforted, period. And therefore, because of that, they are blessed. 
they are blessed. This is forgiveness of sin. What, what do you mourn about? Remember, what the, what's, what's the preaching of John? What's the preaching of Jesus? The very first word, repent. You mourn sin, death. You mourn. You mourn when somebody dies. You mourn when a close relative or a good friend is, is even sick. You might die. That's sad. What causes it? That same sin that we're all preached to to repent for. Repent. And that same morning, me who's that example I gave earlier, just me on my knees, on the floor, crying, I am just so unworthy for the kingdom of heaven. Not only is the kingdom of heaven mine, they will be comforted. I will be comforted, period. And therefore, I am blessed. I am blessed. One other part that starts to happen with this with this future, they will be, they shall be. I like shall. I don't know why. I like shall. It sounds more biblical. Shall be comforted. There's, another, there's something else going on here. When you have the future connected with the past, it's called Passive. Passive is something that's done to you. So here's more gospel. It's not going to be you comforting yourself. You shall be passive. I, I, how's the best way I can put this? Not really. It is the, the, so whenever you see something being done to somebody in the Bible, especially in the New, well, no, really all the way around, especially in the New Testament, is what's called the divine passive. This is also very Lutheran. We don't do it. It's done to us. It's done for us. We are not active agents in our salvation. We are passive. We receive the gifts of God. We receive mercy, the forgiveness of sin. We're given comfort. We're given the kingdom of heaven. And then we respond. And then we respond. We respond by the next time we mess up, we're mourning. Mourning our sins. So, this is, uh, it's an oversight of many other denominations, this divine passive. This is something that's always, always, always done to us, for us. Grace and mercy. All right, how are we doing on time? We'll do one more. We'll do one more. Verse 6, who would like to read it? No, verse 6, verse 6. Blessed are those. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the ones, and I only change it because this is a more literal translation. Blessed are the ones hungering and thirsting um, for righteousness for they shall what? For they shall be satisfied. So, we see the same thing here again. Divine passive. And let's one more time go through. So if I hunger for thirst for righteousness, then I'll be satisfied. That is how a lot of first-time readers of the Beatitudes will interpret that. Because I, I, I'll do that, so then I'll be satisfied. 
That's not what it says. The ones hungering and thirsting for righteousness shall be satisfied. Because, uh, because of that, therefore, or since they shall be satisfied, they are blessed. They are blessed. So why, why, didn't, why didn't they just say the word blessed at the end of the verse? When the word, we don't, we don't do this in the English language either. When a word in Greek starts at the beginning of the sentence, it's emphasized. It's almost like saying, I'm not tired. I'm tired, tired. It's almost like saying it twice. In fact, in Hebrew, they do say it twice. I'm thirsty, thirsty. I'm hungry, hungry. I'm blessed, blessed. I'm not just blessed, I'm blessed. That's the emphasis of why this blessed is at the beginning. I should have mentioned that before. So this righteousness, just in the Beatitudes, righteousness appears five times. I'm sorry, in the sermon, not in the Beatitudes. It only appears seven times in the whole book of Matthew. Five of those seven times are in this sermon. This righteousness is something different. Old righteousness before Christ was what the rabbi taught in the synagogue. Love God. Remember the Sabbath day. Love your neighbor. Don't murder. Don't steal. Do that, and you're righteous. The new righteousness began with the baptism of Jesus. Matthew 3... 15. Hope I wrote the right one down. Yeah, Matt, yeah, verse 15. fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It is fitting for Jesus and John, that's the us, to fulfill all righteousness. So the new righteousness is what God is, a, is going to accomplish for people through Christ. So who are these people that hunger and thirst? Ones that are if we think of who this audience is and where this sermon is being preached, there's a lot of non-Jews there. These are tax collectors and sinners, the disciples, and just because of the region they're in, anyone with an earshot is likely not a Jew. They're not allowed to go to the synagogue. They're not in a household of the people of Israel. So they can't go hear this old righteousness being taught that if you don't murder... You're righteous. If you're, not, uh, if you're not an adulterer, you're righteous. So these are ones that are, the people that hunger and thirst include the Gentile. Uh, and it's a great reversal of prior thought. This is gospel. I, when you think about reversal, um, I don't have to suffer and completely die because Jesus did it for me as a substitute. Things are reversed. What I deserve to happen to me doesn't happen. Jesus took it on for me. This is also a great reversal of a prior thought. I used to have to do this to be righteous. For me, it used to be if and then. Now it's done for me. This is, this is a part of the great reversal. Um, and that's what? Is that four? We got through four Beatitudes? That's about right. Questions before we go into the rest of the end. Interesting? Yes. I'm, uh, this, I get really excited about this. Well, 
Well, as many times as I tried to explain this to the children, I had a hard, hard time. <laughs> and it, it, yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, it's certainly all in the language, but these are pure gospel. Since these ones shall be satisfied, they are blessed. Because these ones will inherit the kingdom of heaven, or will inherit the earth. Because the meek ones will inherit the earth, they are blessed. So this hungering and thirsting for righteousness is done to... They will be satisfied for what they're hungry for, for what they're thirsty for, for what the Gentiles weren't able to do before. All right. Anything else before we wrap up? All right. Let's pray. Taught by our Lord and trusting his promises, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.